Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Kat Arney. Hi, Kat. Hello. This week, we will be finding out how new technologies can help us repair and rebuild our bodies. We'll find out how patches made of stem cells could one day act as a puncture repair kit for the heart, and how soft nanotechnology could see machines making the fantastic voyage around our bodies, delivering drugs to exactly where they're needed. Also, we look at the link between viruses and prostate cancer. We scan the brain for lost memories. Find out how drugs change the way your memory works. Mm, Interesting. And look at the newly published research on plant pests on their genomes. We have uh, news on the genome of potato blight, which caused the 19th century Irish famine, and the aphid, a pest that will be familiar to all gardeners. Plus, Diana O'Carroll will bring us the highlights from the British Science Festival in Guildford this week. And Dave and I get cooking to find out just what bones are made of. That's all to come on today's Naked Scientists. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, in the news this week, there's some very interesting work being done on prostate cancer. Now, there are a few cancers that we know that infection plays a role in them, such as cervical cancer, which is caused by the HPV uh, virus and infection with that, and some cases of cancer that are caused by the Epstein-Barr virus. And now we may be able to add some cases of prostate cancer to that list if early results from the US are anything to go by. And this is work published by Jennifer Stark and her colleagues. They've published the results this week in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute, showing a strong association between a commonly sexually transmitted infection, that's trichomonas vaginalis, and risk of advanced and fatal prostate cancer in men. So what is the link? What have they found? Well, trichomonas infects around 174 million people every year around the world, and it can can infect the prostate gland. Now, it's thought that infection leads to inflammation, which in turn could trigger prostate cancer. Now, previous study has found a link between prostate cancer risk and trichomonas infection, but it was a really small study. Now, this is a slightly larger study, and they looked at 673 men with prostate cancer, and they looked at blood samples taken from them back in the 80s before the cancer had developed, and then they compared their infection status with 673 men who didn't have cancer. Now, that's a decent long-term study, so hopefully these results will be reliable. What did they find? Well, the researchers found that infection with trichomonas was associated with a more than two-fold increase in the risk of advanced prostate cancer and a nearly three-fold increase in prostate cancer that would result in death. Sounds nasty, but say if I had prostate cancer, which I, I you know, may well end up doing one day, I know it's incredibly common amongst men, uh, how would you know How would you know if you're infected with this virus? How would I know if my likelihood of having prostate cancer was increased 
by being virally infected? It's not a virus, it's a bacteria. And up to three quarters of men infected with the bacterium might not actually realise they carry it since they don't develop any symptoms. And clearly not everyone with the infection goes on to subsequently develop prostate cancer. Now it's worth pointing out that much more work needs to be done to confirm this finding and to find out how trichomonas infection is linked to prostate cancer. But if it holds true in larger studies, it would be really important as the infection is easily treated with a course of quite cheap antibiotics. So perhaps this could turn out to be a way to prevent many cases of prostate cancer every year. Well, that's very promising. We all have to keep an eye on that. Now, also this week, the genome of the water mould responsible for potato blight and resultingly responsible for the Great Irish Famine, this is called Phytothora infestans, uh, that's been published in this week's Nature and there are some tantalising targets for attack. But surely the potato famine was over 100 years ago. Isn't this a little bit late? Well, yes. When we talk about the potato famine, which famously hit Ireland between 1845 and 1852, it does seem like a historical rather than a contemporary concern that we have. But plant diseases like potato blight do remain a threat to food security all over the world. In fact, current annual losses due to blight are estimated to be 6.7 billion dollars. Well, can't we just use like pesticides to knock it out? Why do we have to find the genome and, and go forward with this kind of research? Well, preventing and treating blight has actually proven very difficult because it seems to adapt remarkably quickly to our control methods, taking hold very quickly in cultivars of potato that are, or rather were, genetically resistant to blight. So now with the publication of its genome, we can start to understand just how it adapts so quickly and we can devise better ways to fight it. Chad Nussbaum from the Broad Institute of MIT in Harvard, Cambridge in Massachusetts, and his colleagues actually from all over the world, analysed the genome and they compared it to other species of Phytophthora. They found a dense region of highly conserved genes, so these are genes that all these different species share, but then the majority of the genome consisted of these repeating regions. Now, Paul Birch is a professor of plant pathology at the University of Dundee, and he was a co-author on the paper, and he explained why this is important. From the pathogen's point of view, all of the genes that we can see that are to do with infecting potato reside in these repetitive regions. So we would speculate that they're able to evolve faster. The products of uh, the genes in these regions, the proteins that they make, are exposed to the plant's immune system. So we believe that it's, it's got the genes in these regions in order to evolve more rapidly to evade detection by plant immune systems. So this repetitive region of the genome was seen to contain the genes that alter the normal biological processes in the plant, and that helps the blight to get past the plant's defences. It also contained bits of DNA that are known to move around the genome. These are called transposons. And this ability to alter its own genome is thought to be a key feature in the rapid adaptability of the disease. Now that we know how it's doing it, we can start to identify some targets for attack. And also, in a related paper in Current Biology this week, Dawn Arnold from the University of the West of England, or UWE, reports how the, sorry, how the defences of the bean plant may actually be driving bacteria to become even more pathogenic than they already were. Now, obviously, you'd think that plant defences can't be very good if they're actually making their own attacker worse. But it seems that the plants put so much pressure on the bacteria that it forces them to do something a bit unusual. Now, she was working with teams from Imperial College London and Reading University, and they looked at Pseudomonas syringi, which is a bacteria that causes halo blight in bean plants. They observed the bacterium in response to the bean plant's defences, and they watched it 
eject a little region of their DNA, what they call a genomic island, and that bit of DNA was then taken up by other bacteria. So surely this spells a lot for bacterial evolution if there's sort of DNA floating about and being spat around. Well, exactly. This is something that we call horizontal gene transfer. That's the sort of passage from one bacterium to another. And it's thought to play a very key role in bacterial evolution. We know that bacteria can swap these sections of their genome. In fact, we've seen the pathogenic bit of the genome, or the pathogenic genomic island, swapped around in some pretty nasty characters. There's Yersinia, which is the bacteria that causes plague. Plague, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Food poisoning bacteria, Salmonella, also is known to do the same thing. And Vibrio cholera, which you might work out is responsible for cholera, also does the same sort of thing. But this is the first time that we've actually seen it happen within a host, and certainly the first time that we've seen it happen in response to or encouraged by the stress of a host immune attack. So now looking at the rest of the genome, they were able to identify genes that were essential to actually allow this gene transfer to occur. So if we can target those genes, then we can help to slow the development of the pathogenicity and slow the development of resistance, which is really important, in quite a range of pathogens, which should be able to make our disease control systems for all sorts of different plant pathogens much longer lasting. They're plucky things, those pathogens. <laughs> they get up to all sorts of mischief. Uh, so moving from the plant world into the human world. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, Ben, but it happens to me all the time. A person looks familiar, but you can't remember where on earth you met them. Does that happen to you? Yes, it does. It happens an awful lot, far more than it should, I think. Absolutely. And now new research by neuroscientists in the States, this is published in this week's edition of the journal Neuron, suggests why the memory actually does exist. It's in there somewhere, but you just can't retrieve it. That sort of seems quite logical, but how do they actually show that it's there? Well, they used functional MRI scanning. This is a kind of brain scanning that shows patterns of activity within the brain. And uh, the scientists found that brain activity while remembering an event afterwards is very similar to when you first experienced even if you can't remember the details. But the researchers led by Jeff Johnson think that if we could manage to access this missing memory, it's in there somewhere, it could help us to boost our memory power as we get older, and it also might help shed light on vivid but traumatic memories that we try and subconsciously repress. That's interesting. So what did they, what did they have to do in order to see these, these brain activity in the MRI scan? Well, they got a bunch of students as volunteers and stuck them in a brain scanner. Uh, The volunteers were shown words and asked to do various tasks related to the words. For example, imagining how an artist would draw the object named by the word, uh, thinking about how the object is used or pronouncing the word backwards in their minds. And then 20 minutes later, the volunteers saw the words a second time and were told to try and remember what they'd done with them the first time round. Now, by comparing the patterns of brain activity first time round with later patterns of brain activity when they were trying to remember what they'd done, the researchers were able to link certain patterns of brain activity to the different activities. Now, when a volunteer strongly recalled a word from a particular task and what they'd done with it, it was very similar to the pattern generated during the task itself, so first time round. But when they only weakly could remember what they'd done with it, they still produced quite a strong pattern which was recognisable as belonging to that task. So it was very similar to first time round. So it suggests that the memory is in there somewhere. We just need to know how to get it out. Fantastic. Thank you, Kat. The, uh, the brain's an amazing thing, isn't it? It really is 
quite remarkable. It is. Uh, tell us about your story, because I well, can't wait to hear about well, it. Well, this is the thing, you see, that the brain, it may be amazing, but that doesn't stop things taking advantage of it. And it seems that addictive drugs hijack a brain reward mechanism in order to strengthen drug-related memories and therefore perpetuate drug use. And this is according to another paper published in Neuron this week. We already know that dopamine, which is the brain's feel-good reward chemical, plays a, exactly, plays a role in addiction. And it also participates in a process that's called synaptic potentiation. Now, that's the strengthening of nerve connections that happens during learning. So to find out if dopamine would encourage synaptic potentiation as a result of exposure to drugs, John Danny from the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and his colleagues gave physiologically significant doses of nicotine, so these are doses of nicotine that will have an effect biologically, to freely moving mice, and they recorded their brain activity. And they noticed increased synaptic potentiation that correlated with the mice learning to prefer a location that was associated with the nicotine dose. And they also recorded a local dopamine signal in a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is a region towards the centre of the brain, and it's critical for formation of new memories. And this reinforces the view that dopamine enables memories of specific events to be formed. So basically, the, the nicotine, the drug, is rewiring the brain. It effectively makes memories about, you know, stuff you do with drugs seem more significant or important. Well, exactly. That seems to be almost exactly what it does. And this, in turn, starts a vicious cycle where the dopamine strengthens the drug-associated memories and it attaches more importance to them. And that, in turn, increases the likelihood of future drug use. So in any normal situation, the dopamine signal would mark memories and feelings about the environment as important things and that would be an important part of the learning process but this in the presence of an addictive substance means that the system is subverted and you learn that the drugs are very important john danny summarized the importance of this for understanding addiction he said when specific environmental effects occur such as the place or people associated with drug use they are capable of cueing drug associated memories or feelings that motivate continued drug use or relapse now, understanding how drugs change our perception may help to develop treatments or means to prevent relapse, which will save both money and lives. And this has just been done with nicotine, but presumably it's the same for many of the illegal drugs that, uh, that people choose to use as well. I think any addictive drug is very likely to have the same sort of brain mechanism going on, even though their chemistries themselves will differ slightly. The fact that they, I think almost all addictive drugs activate this dopamine reward system, and that suggests that that's really what's going on. That in, in effect, every time you have a cigarette at the bus stop, there's something going on in your brain that tells you that this bus stop is a good place to be and what you should be doing is having a cigarette. Years later, say if you quit smoking and you walk past that bus stop, that pathway is still in your brain. It's been strengthened by the dopamine. And so it actually might make you think, I could do with a cigarette right now. And maybe it'll make you think that that was a really great party I was at, whereas it was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> it's very possible. <laughs> also in the news this week, an international consortium of aphid researchers have been studying the newly decoded aphid genome, due to be published later this year, with a view to developing better pesticides that will not let the aphids develop resistance. Diana O'Carroll met Professor Lynn Field and Professor Kim Hammond-Cossack at the British Science Festival to find out why the aphid and pesticide resistance is such a problem. The problem is that we need to control insect pests. So 
Insects are pests of many of our crops, and if we didn't control them, we would have a severe reduction in crop production. And at the moment, when all the emphasis is on trying to grow more food, we need to make sure we can control pests effectively. The trouble is that when you control pests with chemistry, for instance, the pests are kind of one jump ahead of you at some point, and they develop a resistance to those chemicals. And we have to find ways of either overcoming that resistance or managing it or designing better pesticides that will overcome resistance and also be more selective for pest insects rather than beneficial insects. Then we've got some species of some little aphids there, I think. Could you quickly give us a talk through them? Yes, I can. Aphids are a very important crop pest, um, mainly because they carry virus diseases, plant viruses. They they can do some direct damage by feeding on young shoots, but the, the most damage is done by vectoring viruses. And one of the most important pests is this aphid, the peach potato aphid, or Mysus persici, to give it its Latin name. This is a very important pest in the UK of potatoes, sugar beet, oilseed rape. And we have quite a lot of problems with this aphid because it's developed resistant to many chemicals. This other aphid here is actually the pea aphid, Acerthosiphon pisum. And the reason I brought that along is not because it's a very important pest, but because this is the aphid where we now have a genome sequence. So we have a full genome sequence for this aphid. And most of the genes in there seem to be very similar to genes in other aphids. And we are now able to use that information to look at the genes and the proteins involved in insecticide binding and try to devise ideas about making better chemicals to overcome resistance or perhaps to bind to the target protein in this aphid rather than in a beneficial like a bee. So having the genome of this aphid is now helping us with new control measures for other aphids. And Kim, just to come to you, could you explain a little bit more about how sequencing the genome can help us find those targets? Yes, I mean, when you sequence a genome, first of all, you end up with just a long string of A, C's, T's and G's. But it's when you actually look at that in the context of the genes and where the genes are situated in the genome, then some patterns start to emerge. What genes are present, what are absent, which ones are different between the species. And then you can actually say to yourself, does this actually then affect the biology of the organism? Because our different pests and pathogens have different strategies to attack and cause disease and damage to plants. And then you can start to say there might be some correlations between the presence of particular genes and the way in which they actually have a strategy of attack. Do you think that finding these targets will be the solution? I don't think there'll ever be a final solution. It means that you're almost on a staircase, and what you do is you successfully hop up each step, and then it gives you a chance of actually controlling what is going on at the moment, learn from the mistakes, benefit from the gains, and then hopefully move to the next step when you've got more information. Uh, And by sequencing, particularly in the failures, the strains that come through, what is selected each time, and then learning from those. And I think for insects, the benefit of having genomes from a whole different range of different insect species, which we're now beginning to get, it's going to allow us to look at the um, use of chemicals that will target one species, because one of the problems with using insecticide has been the use of it in crop pests has spilt over into damage to non-target pests, which is what we want to avoid. That was Kim Hammond-Cossack and Lynn Field from Rothamsted Research explaining how understanding the genome of an insect pest can help to develop new control methods that get around the problem of pesticide resistance. You can read about this and lots of other science news on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash news. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. 
You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and Kat Arney, and this week we're looking into bionic bodies to see how science and technology is helping to help us keep our bodies healthier for longer. And don't forget, you can also listen to us online, anywhere in the world, and even out of this world in Second Life. So hello to all the Second Life people. Uh, coming up later, we find out how nanobots could be used to deliver drugs around our body. And in Kitchen Science, we reveal just how important calcium and protein are for our bones. But first, we discover a way to mend a broken heart, possibly literally with the use of stem cells. Now, Professor Sean Harding is a professor of cardiac pharmacology at the National Heart and Lung Institute at Imperial College London, and she's here in the studio with me now. Now, Sean's been using stem cells to develop cardiac patches that could hopefully one day be placed onto damaged tissue damaged by a heart attack and basically send in these special cells to repair it. Hello, Sean. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Hi. Now, cardiac repair sounds an incredible ideal. That's something that we would obviously want to do. Heart disease is, is a very common killer. What are the problems at the moment with cardiac repair? Well, first of all, I should say that there are trials, clinical trials have been going on for some time using stem cells for cardiac repair and with some success as well. They've been using bone marrow cells and injecting these into people's hearts. And I think probably four or five hundred people have been treated that way. There's one going on in London now with, with John Martin. And the good things have happened with these. But what appears to be happening is if anything, a, a regrowth of blood vessels into the into the area. But what appears not to be happening is a production of new actual beating muscle, the myocytes, the muscle cells of the heart. So this is one of the problems. And this is what we've been trying to look at in more detail, along with many other people, about what's the best cell to produce a myocyte. So... Although these new blood vessels are obviously a good thing, it'll help to keep the heart oxygenated, it'll help to keep the, the muscle that is there healthy, it obviously won't mean that we can grow back, we can actually regenerate heart tissue. That's right. The, the, the capacity for the heart to regenerate itself, even with these new blood vessels, is really very low, especially as you get to the older ages. So what, where do you think is the best source for, for stem cells? If bone marrow isn't quite doing what we need to do, isn't doing the full job... What should we be looking at? Well, the front runners, the, the ones that are really good at producing, re contracting myocytes at the moment, are the human embryonic stem cells. And we've used these to, to produce beating muscle. We, we've, it's very tough muscle. We've kept it in the laboratory beating for over a year in some cases. You can send it through the post. It'll come out beating at the end. <laughs> it's, it's very good, tough stuff. Now, I mean, there are, there are problems with this, and some people th uh, are worried about the ethical problems. Uh, it certainly is a problem about matching it to the immune system of the person. So there are other possibilities. Um, one thing is the induced pluripotent cells. By looking at what makes an embryonic stem cell an embryonic stem cell, people have put those factors into skin cells and produced some cells that are really quite like embryonic stem cells. And then there are adult stem cells uh, that you can harvest from the heart and expand. And all these are like uh, coming up on the outside and could be very good. But at the moment, uh, they're just potential, whereas the embryonic stem cells are, are, are the ones that are producing the most healthy and hearty tissue at the moment. It does seem that this is a, a field of great expansion, uh, an awful lot of new interesting discoveries at the moment, because there's a story only a couple of weeks ago about how we could 
we might be able to induce stem cells to come out of the waste from liposuction, from just human fat. Oh, yes. And, and I'm, we, among many other ladies, are very happy with this, the idea <laughs> of this source of repair, certainly, yes. So there are other, lots of other stem cell sources. Now, the problem we have is that if you have made a cell into a beating heart cell, it's getting it to the heart. You can't put it down the blood vessels like you could for a bone marrow cell because now they're too large and they'll just block up the blood vessels. So you have to find another way to do it. And if you inject it into the heart, I think if anybody's ever seen a heart contract, you can see exactly what's going to happen. You, you put the needle in, you inject it, your substance, your cells, the heart contracts and squeezes it right back at you. So, um, you know, you lose a lot of your cells that way. Yes, I'd imagine that could be quite messy. So you have come up with a, a slightly more elegant solution of actually using using patches. That's right. So we, we want to uh, get some kind of um, a ready-made patch to put to transfer the cells into place, uh, most likely over the scar that happens when you have the heart attack, the infarct scar. So that's the best place to put it. And, and really now the, um, the interesting part is thinking about what's the best way to get the cells there. There are natural materials that um, have a sort of porous structure that the cells can grow into. They're one good thing. But at Imperial College, we have this fantastic materials department. And so we've been trying to make some polymers that have perhaps some added benefits. Um, for, for example, one thing we're trying to do is make our polymer uh, match the, the uh, sort of contractile and elastic properties of the heart so it can stop the scar from ballooning out and expanding. So you can, you can produce some extra benefit while the cells are getting into place and, and getting ready and growing. You can keep the heart from getting any worse during that time. And would you also be able to, as well as attaching your stem cells, can you attach all the different factors that you might need to encourage them to, to really become part of the existing heart tissue and to develop properly? That's right. And, and one of the benefits of the polymers again, or even some hydrogels, is uh, to allow slow release of these kind of factors. For example, factors to encourage blood vessels to grow into uh, the cell patch that you've put on or factors to uh, protect the cells because if you put a, 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 the patch on when the heart attack has just happened, it's a very hostile environment, very inf inflamed. So you need some kind of inhibitors of that inflammation to protect yourself. So even though they are tough, you need something to protect them. It's always nice to hear of a scientific endeavour that is so um, multi departmental and oh, yes. you have the the material scientists and obviously you'll have people working on the medicine side of it how once you've made a patch how is it actually delivered i assume you don't need to be quite as invasive as you would do if you were fully opening up the heart well in this case at the moment we are looking at um opening up the heart because you need to put it on top of underneath the pericardium that, that wraps around the heart. There's a lot of robotic technologies being developed at Imperial which have potential for later on. Um, they're putting amazing things in, like valves even, by, by robotic technologies. So there's the potential there, but at the moment we would need an open-heart surgery. Well, clearly this is relatively early days. Uh, whereabouts are we at the moment? How far do you think it's going to be before we can really start looking at putting these into people and, and seeing them actually working out in people on the street? Well, 
there are parts of this uh, puzzle that have already got into the clinic or, or have been approved for clinical use. There's a patch of fibroblasts that can be put on the heart that's been uh, approved. Uh, there's um, the human embryonic stem cells are, have been approved to go into a trial for brain. So they, they, that's there. Um, uh, and uh, so the polymers that we're using uh, are, are derivatives of ones that are used in other kind of tissue engineering solutions and have all, already been put into the body in some form or other. So um, out there, there, the parts of the puzzle are just getting into the clinic. It's putting it all together is what we need to do now. <laughs> well, this sounds, uh, I mean, incredibly promising. It sounds, it must be a very exciting field to work in as well. Oh, extremely exciting. There's a, there's a new um, thing for stem cells to do every week, a new way of getting them or things that they can make. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us. Um, that was Sean Harding from the National Heart and Lung Institute in Imperial College London. She will be with us for the rest of the show so if you have any questions for her or for us you can send us an email to chris at the naked scientists.com but first the british science festival took place in surrey this week and it's an annual gathering of national and international scientists eagerly presenting their research we sent diana o'carroll to guildford and she encountered some attention expanding food cars made of carrots and homes that twitter among other things this year's British Science Festival has seen a bevy of scientists descend upon the University of Surrey to talk about their findings and experiments, some more unusual than others. And if anyone had trouble paying attention to all these talks, it seems the answer comes in the form of flavonoid-rich blueberries. Jeremy Spencer from the University of Reading has found that a dose of blueberries can help maintain your attention span for up to five hours. We took a group of younger individuals and older individuals and we brought them into the University of Reading and we gave them a controlled breakfast. Then we performed a series of cognitive tasks which measured things like short-term memory, attention and motor performance. And then we gave them a blueberry smoothie, if you like, 200 grams of blueberry ground up. One hour after that, they performed the cognitive tasks again and then again after five hours. Um, what we found was, over the five-hour period, we had a deterioration on the control group. Their attention was found to drop over the five-hour period, whereas the ones which had taken the blueberry, attention remained high. In other intervention studies, it certainly seems that blood flow to the brain is involved in these processes. They think that flavonoid-rich foods serve to dilate blood vessels and increase blood flow to the brain, thereby improving attention spans. Jeremy Spencer, University of Reading. Something most of us will pay attention to is a good-looking person. But what is it that makes one person more attractive than another? A number of studies have looked at symmetry and youthfulness, but Tony Little at the University of Stirling thinks it also has something to do with the company you keep. We've also been studying copying-like effects whereby... People are kind of taking information from other people's make-choice decisions. And from that, we found that if you pair someone with an attractive partner, then that increases their attractiveness. And if you pair them with an unattractive partner, that decreases their attractiveness. So, yes, I think uh, when you see Hugh Hefner, you, he might not be the most attractive man, but when you see him with his Playboy beauties, then perhaps you can infer that there's, there's something good about him, like having money, or perhaps he's personally very nice and pleasant. Hugh Hefner, possibly pleasant. Tony Little from the University of Stirling. Also at the festival this year were some attractive developments in technology. 
One such modification to everyday objects created an intelligent home for Andy Stamford Clark. So I've got my house linked up to various sensors to monitor things that are happening, like whether the windows are open, how much power we're using, how many litres of water we've used during the day and things like that. But when I discovered Twitter a couple of years ago, I thought it'd be quite cool to link objects to Twitter, so tweetjects, objects at Twitter. And so I built a gateway from the messaging system through to Twitter, which means that anything that's using in my house, basically, can now make up a Twitter message and send it out to the Twitterverse, which talks about things like £5 worth of electricity used so far this month, or 100 litres of water used so far today, or the phone's ringing. So the main thing has been the power saving. I've reduced my electricity bill by about a third in the year since I've been using it, which is several hundred pounds back in my pocket, which is very nice. It saved us once uh, from wasting a lot of water. I got three texts in a row on my phone from Twitter saying 100 litres used, 200 litres used, 300 litres used. And I quickly stopped the car and phoned my wife and said, what's happening? We've got a flood. And she looked out the window and saw the, the nozzle had flown off the end of the hose pipe and it was just pumping water into the garden. So that saved us wasting a whole load of water, which on the Isle of Wight were metered. So uh, that would have cost us money. And of course, it's a valuable resource. So that's a, a good thing. A home that Twitters, Andy Stamford Clark from IBM UK. Another creation with environmental considerations was the world first, part recycled Formula 3 car. Formula races tend to conjure up images of enormous budgets, exploding champagne bottles and general indulgence. But Kerry Cohen from the University of Warwick is taking a slightly different approach with his car, made out of, among other things, beetroot and carrots. Well, the world first Formula 3 car has uh, a whole raft of environmentally friendly technologies on it. So it's made from recycled materials and waste materials and and some natural materials. It has a carrot fibre steering wheel. It runs on biodiesels brewed from waste chocolate and uh, waste alcohol. And uh, it's got natural fibre composite panels on. It's got recycled carbon fibre panels on. It's lubricated by vegetable oils. And um, it also has a a catalyst that converts low-level ozone to oxygen as it's driving along. So it it helps cancel out smog and things. And uh, when's the next outing? Can we see her in action anytime soon? We hope she's going to be running for a first competitive race in October at Brands Hatch. And um, she's already done Goodwood Festival of Speed and done the hill climb there a half dozen times and was very fast and a great crowd pleaser. So it was giving us comfort that she could do well in a Formula 3 race. I think that counts as one of your five a day. Kerry Kerwin from the University of Warwick. Now, even Kerry's car will pump out some carbon dioxide during manufacture and the race itself. But there are ways of recapturing carbon after it's been emitted. One method involves pumping carbon dioxide into underground cave systems and porous rocks. And Stuart Hazeldine from the University of Edinburgh has found that the UK is particularly well-placed to do this. So it looks like 95% of the storage available is in saltwater aquifers. The other 5% is in depleted oil fields and in depleted gas fields. That storage could take several hundred years of UK emissions from power stations... And what we're promoting is that that could actually take 100 years of power station emissions from all of northwest Europe. Instead of putting the next 100 years of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere from Germany and Denmark and Belgium and Holland and Poland, instead we could build a large set of pipelines and inject that deep beneath the North Sea and the UK could charge a rent for that and make money out of that. 
carbon storage for sale, and that was Stuart Hazeldine from Edinburgh University. And although storage capacity is finite, it might give us a bit more time to get round to replacing our bulbs or decide what we want to do about biofuels or nuclear power or wind farms or hydrogen fuel cells and, oh, everything else. It's all right, Diana, you can calm down. Uh, It turns out the UK is a sponge for carbon capture, more so than the rest of Europe, except perhaps Norway. And that was Diana O'Carroll speaking to Stuart Hazeldine, Kerry Kerwin, Andy Stamford-Clark, Tony Little and Jeremy Spencer, all at the British Science Festival. Now, we've covered all sorts of nanotechnology on our show before, and an exciting new area is so-called soft nanotechnology. Or is it all that new? The cells in our bodies are fantastic examples of soft machines that work at the nanoscale, and now scientists are attempting to copy some of that cell technology to build mini-machines of their own. Now, we're joined by Professor Tony Ryan from Sheffield University. He's one such scientist. Hello, Tony. Hello, Kat. Hello. Uh, So what exactly do we mean when we talk about soft nanotechnology? It was great in the introduction when you said we learn from biology and from cell biology in particular, because I'm a physical chemist and and I've drawn my inspiration for this research and my colleague Richard Jones, basically from cell biology books. So so cells, all the cells in your body are put together by a process called self-assembly. And and that's where the the molecules have information written into them to form structures, whether they be membranes uh, or little machines. Um, And the the self-assembly is done by the molecules wiggling around under the control, well, or or not under the control of, by Brownian motion. So soft nanotechnology uses self-assembly with molecules that contain information and Brownian motion to build structures just like biology does. So would this be like proteins that kind of fold under their own steam? They've got the right kind of bonds in them that make them work? If only we were that clever. <laughs> um, to, to make... To, so, so, you know, pro, proteins have, have 21 building blocks and, and fantastic sequence. And actually, most of the proteins there, you know, if, if a protein's a 1,000 units long, most of the proteins there to hold four or five units in a specific configuration um, and and that's really really hard to to predict ab initio so we make much simpler molecules with maybe one or two or, or three different units uh, where we can program pattern formation uh, and structures and are you using things based on amino acids based on the sort of things we see in nature so so in our research we've been we've we've particularly tried to not use anything natural Okay, so, so what we're trying to learn are the design principles. Um, so we've used more or less extensively um, synthetic polymers. So we make our own molecules that, that show some of the features of proteins, but they're completely and utterly synthetic. Then we don't have this kind of Frankenstein fear um, of, of the grey goo taking over the world and things. And how small are we actually talking? What, what sort of size uh, can you go down to? Well, so we can exercise control at the level of molecules. So, you know, at the nanometer level. So it really is nanotechnology. And and what sort of things are you looking at using these for? What sort of applications do you think they could have? Well, I was I was um, out with some neuroscientists uh, earlier this week and we were discussing delivering molecules across the blood-brain barrier, which is a particularly hard thing mm. uh, to do. Um, you know, the... The enduring image of, of nanotechnology is of this miniature submarine that float, that <laughs> swims around in your body. Yeah. You know, a bit like the Fantastic Voyage. 
And it's very appealing, you know, very appealing movie. And, you know, it's got Raquel Welsh in a scuba diving suit and things. Um, but, but that, you know, that really wouldn't work. All, all the physics of how things happen at the level of cells, you know, below the micron scale, mean that materials and objects behave very differently. So a miniature submarine wouldn't work. But something that looked like a bacteria or a sperm might work to do that job of cell-by-cell of -cell delivery. Excellent. So we could, uh, say, deliver drugs across the blood-brain barrier or maybe specifically into tumours or something like that? Well, tumours are actually relatively easy. Um, uh, so, so They love nanoparticles, don't they? Well, well they do, but, but that's because the, the, the blood supply to tumours is generally very, very leaky. Um, so, so if you put something in the blood supply then it will fall out of the blood supply where there are holes, and generally there are holes around tumours. So, so to address something to a tumour is actually done now. You can get things called, they're called stealth liposomes. Okay, so, so they're liposomes just like um, a, a famous um, cosmetics company might try and sell you, okay, because you're worth it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so this is a bag um, that's decorated with molecules that stop the immune system attacking it, and then that bag um, comes out of the blood supply around a tumour and, and just naturally collects there. And that's used to deliver doxorubicin in the clinic now. Yeah, because liposomes are another example of something that just sort of assembles itself if you get the, the water and the fat right, isn't it? Yep. So, so our molecules basically learn from liposomes. So we learn from, from lipids how to make a membrane. So what we've been doing is making molecules, uh, they're called block copolymers. So if you think of the polymer as a, a piece of string, then we have a piece of string that's maybe red one side and blue the other. And the red bits hate water and the blue bits love it. So it makes um, a bilayer. So all the, all the red bits cluster together and the blue bits protect them from the water. And then those, they make a big sheet and the sheet wraps up to make, to make a bag. And then as, as you wrap the sheets up, you can put things in the bag, okay? And these, these bags will, will float around. Um, and we've even designed them so that if they get taken into a cell, um, they go into a thing called an endosome, and the endosome changes the pH. And then the changing pH makes the bag explode, Ah, very clever. And, and deliver the contents. And we've used that to, to transfect, to do, actually literally do gene therapy, um, to make green fluorescent protein in a whole range of uh, human and animal cells. And now the thing is, you know, can we attach a little tail to one of these bags to make it swim? Absolutely fantastic. I, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there because I could talk about this for ages, just finding out about the, the principles of what we can use in our bodies to try and treat diseases and, and use nanotechnology. Thanks very much for talking to us, Tony. That was Professor Tony Ryan from Sheffield University, where he's Pro Vice Chancellor of the Faculty of Science. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and with Kat Arney. And now it's time for Kitchen Science, looking at nature's own bioengineering, a special composite that we're all very familiar with, and that's bone. I've always been told not to play with my food, but that's pretty much exactly what Dave has been doing for this week's Kitchen Science, or certainly his food leftovers, if not the food itself. Dave, what are you going to show us today? Well, basically, I've been looking at bone. 
Last week I had some nice chicken drumsticks for supper, and rather than throwing away the drumsticks, I thought I'd have a look at them. So here we've got a chicken drumstick. If you want to feel it, it's a really big, strong bone. You can hit it, you can bend it. I, I could probably snap it, but I have to try very hard. You can definitely feel that there's, there's a little bit of give in there, and it, you could break it. Of course, being a bone from a bird, it's also quite light because they've adapted to not weigh too much. This one's relatively clean, although I do think I have bits of your dinner on my fingers now. I think I'll give that back, thank you. What particularly have you been looking at? Well, bone is also a composite structure. It's made up of two main structural things. One of them is the sort of thing you'd expect. It's hydroxyapatite. It's a hard mineral that makes bones really, really hard. And the other one is a protein called collagen. This is a stuff which your ears are made of, and it's kind of quite floppy. So I thought we'd have a look at some bones and try and extract all the hydroxyapatite and maybe another bone and extract all the collagen and see what effect it has on the bone itself. So we should be separating two of the main constituents of bone to see what we're left with. How do you actually go about this? What have you had to do? Well, the first thing I did, you can do this at home perfectly easily, is basically take a jar of vinegar and leave the drumstick in there for about a week. So I fish a bone out of here. Well, it's very white. There's a very strong smell of vinegar in here now as well. It looks like a very clean bone, but what's changed about it? Well, if you feel it, Ben, it's a bit gunky, but if you feel it, it's, it's gone quite soft. It's really very squidgy. It almost feels rubbery. That's right. It sort of feels a bit like your ears, because it is essentially made of the same stuff as your ears, collagen. So by pickling it, we've got rid of the hard stuff, the hydroxyapatite, this calcium compound, and we're left with the really rubbery, bendy stuff. It's very strange. You just wouldn't think of bone as being that soft and that squidgy. So that's what we've done to look at the rubbery stuff, the collagen. What have we done to look at just the really hard stuff? Again, something quite easy you can do at home if you're ever having a barbecue. Basically just put a bone on the fire, leave it there for half an hour, and take it out again. And you'll end up with something like this. So this has actually burnt out all of the protein. It's certainly blackened by the fire, and if you can tell, it's been burnt. But what's changed? If you feel it, you should feel it's really quite light, much lighter than a normal bone, because you've dried it out and burnt out most of the protein. It is incredibly light. You can hardly feel that it's in your hand. What else has happened? It's still quite hard. It doesn't bend very easily. Yes, it's definitely still, it's still quite stiff. I'm really sorry, Dave, I've just broken your bone. Uh, with hardly any effort at all, it's now shattered into quite a few jagged pieces. I'm sorry, Dave, if I've ruined your experiment. No, that's shown exactly what I was going to show you next, Ben. Now, hydroxyapatite is very, very hard and quite stiff, but it's also very, very brittle. So once you bend it beyond its breaking strain, you can get a crack. That crack passes all the way through the bone and it just shatters into lots of small pieces. But if it's surrounded by this tough, stringy collagen protein, the crack can't move anywhere because the protein takes a lot of the weight. And so you get a strong but hard substance like bone. So it really is about the interplay between the different properties of the two different materials we have in there. And this is why it's a composite. It's a composite of two things. You get the advantages of two. And even though the hard stuff itself breaks, I mean, really just like pencil lead if you're writing too quickly, because we have the collagen in there, you end up with, going back to your original bone, good, solid bone. It really can take quite a lot of pressure, and it doesn't break at all. Do all bones... Everywhere in nature, all have this balance, this composite material. 
most land-living creatures and most fish do. But things like sharks don't. Their bones have never developed the mineralisation, so they're still quite flexible and bendy, which also means that they don't fossilise very well. So mostly with sharks, all you'd find is the teeth. And also, when we're children or babies, our bones start off very, very soft and flexible because they're only made out of the cartilage, the collagen. And then slowly, as we get older, they mineralise more and more from the ends until right in the middle, eventually they fuse together and form a big, long, solid, very hard, tough bone. So our bones, and the bones of most other animals, rely on the compromise of a composite material. Do we do the same thing in technology? All sorts of places. Even ancient technologies like making a sword or a knife, you have a composite of different types of steel. For example, you make the cutting edge incredibly hard so as it can cut through things. But if you made the whole blade that hard, if you hit something with it, it would tend to just shatter into a thousand different pieces. A bit like your bone did when I was handling it earlier. <laughs> exactly. You probably have to hit it a bit harder, but same idea. So you use much softer but much tougher steel behind the blade to be able to absorb the impacts while still taking advantage of the hard steel at the front. Now, that's a very good point. You, you said that there's very hard steel, but there's also very tough steel. What's the difference? I would have thought the two words mean the same thing. Well, from a scientific point of view, they actually mean two completely different things. Hardness is to do with how stiff it is, how hard it is for things to scratch it. So something like glass is a very, very hard material. It will scratch most kinds of stone. It's very, very hard. But if you hit something with it, it shatters into a thousand tiny pieces. Whereas something like rubber is very, very soft, not hard at all. You can scratch it with your fingernails. It'll bend very easily. But if you hit something, if you, you can smash it against a wall to your heart's content, and it's not going to break. It can absorb a huge amount of energy by stretching and deforming. So toughness is to do with the amount of energy it can absorb when in an impact. And so our bones consist of both hard material, the hydroxyapatite that makes them so stiff, and also very tough material, the collagen that bends and wibbles but can actually absorb quite a lot of energy, which means that should I fall off my bike, as does occasionally happen, hopefully my bones won't break. That's all we have for Kitchen Science this week, and we'll be back with more next week. So, pickling a bone in vinegar will take out the hard calcium-based stuff, leaving the rubbery protein behind, but burning it gives you just the hard stuff and a very brittle bone. As I found out when accidentally breaking Dave's experiment, um, he promises to burn another bone and get some interesting video up on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science. But if you'd like to let us know about your own science experiments, or if there's something that you feel would need our experimental touch, you can email us chris at the naked scientists.com lifting the lab coats on the world's best science the naked scientists this is the naked scientists and we are looking at bionic bodies at the moment and we've had a very interesting question from tony in cambridge and he wants to know if the heart can get cancer. Now, I think this is a good question for both Kat, who, of course, in her day job works for Cancer Research UK, but also uh, Professor Harding. Sean, what do you think? Can the heart get cancer? It's very rare to get cancer of the heart. If you do get it, it's usually cancer of the blood vessels in the heart, angiosarcoma, rather than the muscle cells of the heart itself. And in a sense, the cancer and heart disease are two ends of the spectrum with cancer being a, a um, very fast-growing cells, whereas heart disease is because the, the heart can't regenerate itself very much. And one of the things we have to be really careful about in stem cell research 
for, for heart disease is not doing things to, to uh, trigger cancers. There were things that might, we might want to do for the heart, like growing more blood vessels or stimulating stem cells or reducing the amount of natural cell death are all the opposite things to what the cancer people want to do to, to uh, kill off the cancers. So we have to be really careful in treading that line. And cat is uh, heart cancer something you come across often yeah, in your day job? There's there's a bit of a myth that the heart is something that doesn't get cancer, but it can happen. As Sean says, it's incredibly rare. Um, and it is because the heart doesn't regenerate, it doesn't turn over its cells, whereas tissues like breast, bowel, skin, they tend to make new cells a lot, so you just increase your chances of getting cancer in those tissues. But it can happen, though it is phenomenally rare. Okay, very interesting. We've also, sticking with the the idea of repairing the body, we've had an email from Jimmy Hahn, and he says, can you repair the mind, so in things like bipolar or any mental illness, through this sort of technology? Now, I think for a start, we have to be careful of the fact that mind and brain are two different things. Kat, any ideas? Um, I think it it should be possible. Um, There's certainly some evidence that I think antidepressant drugs can change uh, the the turnover of cells. It'd be interesting to see if Sean's got any views on this. Yes, that's certainly true, that uh, depression reduces the uh, turnover of cells in the brain. So uh, certainly from that point of view, the the regeneration might have a a possibility. And things like repairing um, the pathways that are changed in epilepsy, you could see that uh, Mm. would be very amenable to this kind of uh, this kind of stem cell regeneration interesting stuff and we've also had two uh, related questions and one of them that i think we really need to open up to the audience and see what they think about this one now the two we've had one was a text that we had from fran thank you very much fran and she said that we're taught that the grass is green and the sky is blue but do all of us see these colors as the same now that's a really interesting one because i think it's partly cultural but ultimately the the actual frequency of light that our eyes are picking up is going to be the same for green as it is for everybody else but then if we're brought up being told that green is in fact blue then we're always going to think that green is blue cats what do you think yeah i think we had someone on a while ago who was talking about the science of vision and and basically the the red i see is not the same as the red you see it's it's because the frequency may be the same but it really depends how the brain interprets it very true. And the related question, which is one that we do need to open up to people, it was from Kathy Leslie. She sent us an email saying that she was watching her eight-year-old son and his friends playing cricket. And she wanted to know how boys with colour blindness cope with learning how to play cricket. Because you all start off with a red ball and you play on green grass. So if you're red, green, colour blind, then surely it's much harder for you to see the ball. And so you'd be at a disadvantage with playing cricket. Now, I am not particularly good at cricket, I must admit, but I can't blame that on being colourblind because I'm not colourblind. Kat, any ideas? Um, I think you would still see the motion of the ball and you'd still see the ball, you just might not see the colour of it. It has a very different texture to grass, of course, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And on the forum, there was quite a bit of chat about this. Uh, Liner and RD and Bald Chemist were all making very good points about it. And Bald Chemist pointed out, of course, blind people also play cricket. So whether or not you can actually see the ball may not necessarily be a hindrance when playing cricket. But if you are colourblind and if you'd like to let us know how you cope with playing cricket, then please do get in touch. You can drop us an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now it's time for our question of the week with Diana O'Carroll. Hello, yes, this week we've got a watery whirlwind of a problem. 
Hello all naked scientists, my name is Gary Brannigan from Salford near Manchester in the UK. My question is, while on holiday in Wales I was looking over Cardigan Bay and I was wondering what dictates the frequency of the waves. So what makes the best conditions for a surfer? My name's Stephen Salter and I'm a retired professor of engineering design at Edinburgh University in Scotland. Well, the frequency of ocean waves depends on the wind speed, the time that the wind has been blowing, and the length of the sea that it has been blowing over, which is what we call the fetch. We actually prefer to talk about the period of waves, which is the inverse of frequency, because people like to think about numbers greater than one rather than thinking about small decimals. If you started with the wind blowing over calm water, the waves start with small heights and short lengths, but these steadily increase. In deep water, the waves with the longer lengths travel more rapidly, and the growth continues until the speed of the waves is about the same as the speed of the wind when it can't put any more energy in. And we describe this as a, a fully developed sea. There'll actually be a mixture of periods, and people are quarreling about how you define the period in a mixture of them. Real seas often have a spectrum with more than one peak showing that the waves have come from more than one place or maybe that the wind speed changed while they were growing. Periods in seconds are of the same sort of order as wind speeds measured in meters per second, a bit more or a bit less depending on how you define your period. And most sea waves have periods in the range 5 to 15 seconds with the longer ones coming when you've had a, a really fast wind blowing for a long time over a long bit of sea. So it's the wind speed and the distance, or fetch, over which the wind has been blowing that determines how often the waves hit the shore. And did you know that with the breakers' surface use, the waves curl round because the bottom of the wave is slowed down as the water becomes shallower? It'll only start to break when the depth of the water is 1.3 times the height of the wave. And from macro-sized sea waves to the tiniest waves on our bodies. My name is Simon Kappa. Fingerprints are very useful for identifying people. But what was the original function of fingerprints? If you know why we have fingerprints, then tell us either by email, and that's chris at thenakedscientist.com, or write it on the forum. All you have to do is sign in and write what you think for all to see. And the address is thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. That was Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. She'll be back next week. But in the meantime, it's available as a standalone podcast on the web at thenakedscientist.com slash QOTW. And that's all we have time for this week. Many thanks to Sean Harding, Tony Ryan, Lynn Field, Kim Hammond Cossack, Stuart Hazeldean, Kerry Kerwin, Andy Stamford Clark, Tony Little, and Jeremy Spencer. And also thanks to our production team, Diana O'Carroll, Mira Senthalingam, Dave Ansell, and Tom Simpkins. Finally, thanks to all of you guys at home for listening. Next week, Helen and I will be flying high into the world of birds to investigate the life of a cuckoo, as well as to reveal the smart brains of the rook family, including how crows are finally proving some of Aesop's fables to be true. If you have any science questions for us, you can write to us on chris at thenakedscientist.com or join us on the web to see all of our other podcasts and our thriving forum. We'll be back next week. Have a wonderful week. Goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.